So we have Travis on the line here. What do you want to ask him? How do I reach out to sponsors and build that relationship? I would say that the best way is always, of course, in person, right? Now, the problem with local is that you're so limited on talent and who's around you. I used to go to conferences nationwide before COVID, just Mm -hmm. all kinds of multifamily and real estate, this, that, and the other, any kind of investing conference, really. And uh, you would absolutely be able to network and find these people at those events. Everyone has this passion and different skill sets for real estate. And so it's putting yourself in an environment where you can partner up more easily. Those are probably the best ways. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is journal entry number 42 and part of our Ask the Expert series. In today's episode, we have experienced investor Travis Watts and aspiring investor David Hudgens. Keep listening for some expert tips on how aspiring investors can build relationships with deal sponsors. And now, the show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. Very excited for today's show. This is one of our Ask the Expert episodes. We have two amazing people on the line with us right now. We've got a guy with a ton of experience in multifamily and passive investing, Travis Watts and a very motivated and energetic aspiring investor, David Hudgens. So first, Travis Watts is a full-time passive investor. He's been investing in real estate since 2009 in multifamily, single-family, and vacation rentals. He's also the director of investor relations at Ashcroft Capital, and he dedicates his time to educating others who are looking to be more hands-off in real estate. That said, Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Very excited to talk to you today. Started following you a little while ago on various social media platforms. And you know, like I said, just really been anxious for this episode. So if you would, please, why don't you start out with your, your background and history up until you really thought, hey, this, this apartment thing could be the next thing for Travis Watts. Sure. Yeah. I got involved with real estate in 2009 in the single family space. Started how most people probably start just buying a single family place in your own backyard, so to speak. The first light bulb moment for me was I had bought this home actually to live in Mm -hmm. and I had a spare bedroom and it was next to a college campus. And I thought, you know, no other reason just to have a spare bedroom, might as well rent this thing out. And so I kind of started with house hacking more or less. And it was at that moment back then when I wasn't a high income earner that someone hands me a check of, roughly $600, which was about my mortgage payment. And I Mm -hmm. thought, wow, I didn't have to work or do anything. I didn't have to exchange my time for that. Someone's just paying my bills passively. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the getting the ball rolling with with passive investing. From there, I really took a unique approach. And I kind of wish in a lot of ways I kind of hadn't done this, but I started doing fix and flips and vacation rentals and more house hacking and a lot of very active hands-on things as I was trying to hold down a W-2 job in the oil industry. So I was working 100 hour work weeks away from home, out of state, overseas. I worked in Saudi Arabia. And you can imagine trying to scale up a single family portfolio with that kind of time commitment in addition. Suffice to say, it it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I burned myself out by 2015. That's where I had to kind of go back to the drawing board 
really evaluate myself, my strengths, my goals. And what I discovered is I really want to be passive in mm-hmm. real estate. I love real estate. I love cash flow. I love the tax advantages. However, being in the business of real estate personally wasn't a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what prompted the passive approach. So from 2015 to current, that's what I do now. I'm a full-time passive investor, as you pointed out. So I don't know, 30 plus deals as a limited partner, mostly mm-hmm. in multifamily and apartments, but also self-storage and other asset classes that produce passive income. So that's a little bit of my background. And so now I help educate others who are working professionals who potentially would like to be passive or hands-off in the real estate space. Yeah. Yeah. So, so lots of fix and flips and didn't work out for you. Was it because of the time commitment that it didn't work out or what's, what was the issue there? Two things. One, I wasn't very good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just got to be yeah. honest. Yeah. <laughs> There's people all around me doing it more efficiently with better mm-hmm. connections, better deals, wider profit margins, more handy, all those kinds of things. And the biggest thing for me personally was the time commitment. You know, my highest and best, so to speak, on income potential wasn't in the real estate space. It was with the job I was trying to hold down. So I just didn't want to take my eye off of that and jeopardize that career. So a lot of folks out there like that, obviously, doctor, dentist, lawyer, attorney, you name it. So there's folks that uh, prefer to be more hands-off and Mm -hmm. folks that definitely should be hands-on. Yeah. And I like that you recognize that. You recognize what your best and highest use was and how you could basically make the most income to be able to, to turn into passive. So I think a lot of people don't realize that until it's too late. I'm I'm 40 something years old and I didn't realize that I I could make a whole lot more money with real estate until just recently. But yeah, that's, that's good. Good on you. I'm glad you, you found that out sooner rather than later. What's your motivation for, for investing? You know, what's your big burning why behind why you do stuff? Yeah, I think for my my wife and I, so we love to travel worldwide. Mm-hmm. That's just our passion. My wife works for an airline, so that kind of goes hand in nice. hand, makes it easy. At least before COVID, right? We were world travelers. Yeah. <laughs> now we're stay-at-homers. Yeah. But anyhow, that that's a, a part of our why and part of our purpose. We like the flexibility of lifestyle that passive investing can bring. I remember all the different situations when I had my active deals, something always kind of tied me down. You know, when we would talk about, oh, let's go to Europe for a couple of weeks. Yeah, well, I'm working on this project. I got a closing coming up. I got this, I got that. And so it was really hard to break away and, and to do those kinds of things. So I think lifestyle is the biggest thing. I talk a lot about a concept called time freedom, yep. the ability to do what you want, when you want, as much as you want with your time. And that's kind of my message to the world is helping folks achieve what it is they're passionate about, kind of mm-hmm. living their highest and best use of their life and their time. So. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Travel has always been something that I've enjoyed and I've gotten to the point in my, my W2 job where we do have a lifestyle that we want to maintain. And I think you're right. Everybody's looking for that time freedom. I don't think anybody wants to wake up and go punch a clock every morning, but people do it every day. But yeah, time freedom. So that, yeah, really resonates with me. I think that's, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So just, just curious, where's your favorite place to travel? Well, it's a good one. For our honeymoon, we spent three weeks out in Asia, mostly mm-hmm. in Thailand. That was a great place. And then we were, we were in Venice just before the, uh, the floods and everything. And mm-hmm. so I guess that happens every year, but it seemed exceptionally bad last year. So mm-hmm. those are probably two of our favorites. Yeah, I've done a fair amount of travel. I think the places, the places I've spent, uh, the area I've spent most time in would be South America. But okay. Italy's on my wife's bucket list. That was one of the drivers for her. I told her, hey, when when we start getting these multifamily things, you know, we're going to Rome. So 
that helped got help get her in to to the business with me. So, all right. So <laughs> let's found the why. <laughs> yeah, that that her her why. I mean, her why yeah, is, is all exactly. about kids and family. Yeah. And you know, obviously, that's a big part of my why as well. Is you know, I want to provide for the kids, make sure they have a solid, stable life. But I do also like to travel. You know, I like to spend a lot of time in in other places. I think. Rio's probably my favorite place, but ho- hopefully we can get to Rome and Venice and tour that area of the world too. So, awesome. So let's talk about some of the the deals or projects you've done. And once again, as we mentioned before the show, could be anything. You know, one project or the type of project you look for. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and give us an idea of what you're looking for. Yeah, for the most part, I've got about eighty percent of my investable portfolio in value add business plans in the multifamily sector. I would say anywhere from say two hundred unit properties to six hundred unit properties, usually with about a five year hold to them, where renovations take two to three years, and then you've got a little bit of a margin there to potentially find a buyer and exit the deal. Uh, that's kind of the strategy that I like, specifically B and C class multifamily as well. 1980s, 90s, early 2000s properties where your average rents might be, you know, a thousand bucks a month to maybe 1200 a month for mm-hmm. two bedroom place. So I, I kind of like that, that niche. I did a lot of back testing and, and study before I got involved in that space in 2015 as to kind of what held up pretty well through mm-hmm. the last recession with the idea being, hey, if I'm going to focus this much time and energy on something, I want to be able to do that something for more than, say, five or 10 years and then right. be done with it and have to start over again. <laughs> so yeah. kind of, you know, eliminating the shiny object syndrome, the, the maybe the crypto stuff, things I really didn't know about and, and are kind of uncertain where, where the future is headed with that into something more stabilized with a track record that yeah. everybody needs a place to live. So. You know, and that, that's something that attracted me to, to multifamily. It's, I don't think anybody can say it's recession proof, but right. it does fare well. It has fared very well in the last couple of recessions. In the downturns, right. people always have to live somewhere. It's not not affected, but it's less affected than other property types and usually comes out the back end a lot better. So now, right. now just curious, you say 200 to 600 units. Why, why that uh, unit count right there? Yeah, good question. I like two things. I like the diversification element of it. When Sometimes when you get too small of a property, then you have this unexpected expense that, that comes up that can really affect the performance of the property. Maybe you have to stop distributions, maybe a capital call just kind of depends. So it gives you kind of a wider array for the expenses of property management, the ability to, to pull fees, of course, for the sponsor, if you're looking mm-hmm. on the active side. Also, in the range of let's call it purchase prices of say 40 million to you know 80 million there's a lot of institutional buyers on the back end so mm-hmm. that's always good to kind of have the end in mind and reverse engineer the business plan so i kind of like that strategy a lot of these partnerships i do we're selling to reits or pension firms mutual funds that kind of stuff so yeah the, the, those are the two main reasons for okay. for that size Good. Yeah, that, that's that's solid. I mean, looking at who's going to buy on the back end, good enough. And I, I would imagine, you know, when you're looking at the two to 600 unit, especially closer to 600 unit, you're looking large metros only, correct? Right. For the most part. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, small metros, you're not, you're not going to find a 600 apartment you know, complex yeah. in, in a small metro. Well, good. So your know, last question for you, uh, what's next for you? 
What's next? Uh, more LP deals. A lot of people ask me, and in fact, just today on LinkedIn, someone had made a comment about me being a, a general partner. I really don't have that intention. And I hope that that I don't personally, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Obviously, that's a fantastic path for so many, but mm-hmm. it's not right for me, as we discussed earlier. Not my strength. It's not what I want to be doing with my time commitment. So more LP deals. Hopefully COVID is over <laughs> one of these days and we can get back to traveling. And that's really kind of what's on our pending list right now. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, let's uh, transition. Well, we got David Hudgens on the line here. He's a co-founder and CFO of, uh, let's see, this is OTMFC. Hey, David, what does that stand for? I should have asked you that prior to, but what, what, what is that? Well, it's kind of the acronym that people came up with for the group of guys we do like lighting in the lighting industry. Right. So it stands for one tight mother crew. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I like that. I like that. So good, good enough. So usually I read your bio for you, but got you doing your own bio, but you do lighting grip and vehicle rentals and other stuff for the film and television industry. And you're, you're out of Los Angeles, right? Yes. Yeah. Great place for film and television. Definitely. Something else that I noticed on your bio, you're, you're also an elected official. You're on the board of the Los Angeles Neighborhood Council and the chair of planning and land use committee. All right. So you work with developers and large multifamily mixed use properties with your elected position too, correct? Yes. Yeah. They, whenever uh, somebody wants to bring a project to the city, then there's a bit of a vetting process. So they have to come and present to the neighborhood council. Mm -hmm. That way the community can get involved, especially if they're wanting to get an alcohol permit or something for a restaurant and just lets lets the community put their input on the project. Nice. So that that kind of positions you very uniquely in your area for multifamily development. I I don't know if Los Angeles is one of the areas you're you're focused on investing in, but yeah, at least uh, you're, you're exposed to a lot of it, to the development side and everything else. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good way to see what's going on and what projects are being presented. And then it's also great to be able to see how different pockets of LA is developing or what the future plans are so you can strategize about what are the better areas to invest in. Yeah, nice, nice. So let's talk a little bit about your background, but let's, let's you know, full stop, go and, and back up. Give us your background and history up until you, you decided that apartments is going to be what you focused on. My wife and I were dating, and we were living in an apartment in L.A. Couldn't mm-hmm. afford to buy a house in L.A. because it's too expensive. So we decided uh, she was working in the real estate industry, and we decided we wanted to invest in real estate. So we bought some single-family homes out of state. And our, my first one was in Houston, and it was like $130,000. And I got this huge four-bedroom house that mm-hmm. for the rest of the country is normal, but for L.A., I, I thought it was a palace. So that was our, our first properties. And then 2009 hit and we were able to start buying some REOs here in LA and did a couple of those, did some condos and single families. And then we finally had the capital to be able to get into doing multifamily. Okay. Nice. Nice. So what, what is your, your motivation? What's your big burning why for this? Well, it's kind of like what Travis was saying earlier. I want to not be working every day, have the freedom to be able to travel, have the freedom to be able to have a, a schedule that I want to have mm-hmm. and not, you know, I, I own my own business, which is great, but they're still going in and working every day, five days a week. 
and it'd be great to just have the freedom to take off and travel more when you want to. Yeah. So, so once again, more, more of a time freedom aspect to be able to do what you want when you want to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, good, good. So we have uh, Travis on the line here. What do you want to ask him? There's so much stuff I'd like to ask him. About. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, start with the easy stuff, please. Yeah. Throw, throw him a softball, get him warmed up. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll start with a fun something then. Uh, you said that you do or have done in the past vacation rentals. Yeah. Uh, one of my pipe dreams is I would love to buy like a, a duplex or something in St. Thomas mm-hmm. and have that to like rent out and pay for itself and then have a place to go stay for you know a month or so for free. But yeah. I've never done short-term rentals or something like that. So I just have been kind of hesitant about, is it going to pan out? How, you know, is it going to pay for itself? What are your tips and thoughts for that? Gotcha. That's funny because <clears throat> so when my wife and I visited St. Thomas and St. John, we kind of had the same idea. So we were actually thinking St. John. So I started kind of researching that. And I think the biggest thing, the biggest hurdle that we ran into was the property management side of it. So yes, there's companies that obviously do that and specialize in it. However, they take such a hefty fee because you're constantly having these turns. You you have to do everything. It's almost like you had a long-term tenant move out. You got to yeah. go in and clean everything and reset everything. So there are a lot of turn costs. So if you're talking out of state or out of country, it could impede on, on your cash flow to the point where to your point, you, you may not be cash flowing the property. Now, there's obviously ways to make that work, and it depends if you bought a place in cash or it's financed and all those kinds of things. But when we did our short-term rental stuff, it was self-managed, which was a big problem for me as a time commitment, but it made the cash flow exceptional, yeah. <laughs> right? And so it's kind of that that trade-off as we go through these topics and conversations, a lot of the time what we're talking about is just active versus passive and then your time commitment and then you getting compensated for your time, right? That's the biggest difference. So not to plug an unaffiliated person's project, but I know that the real estate guys, for example, you know, Russ and, and Robert Helms have this Mahogany Bay Village out in Belize where they've taken a partnership with the Hilton company so that you can buy a vacation place. And when you're not there, it's professionally managed and rented for you in a turnkey kind of style with Uh maybe a little more structure and track record and and those kinds of things in place. So the point is not to plug that particular project, but these things exist and it is possible. I would just want to make sure that I had an A plan and a B plan Mm -hmm. for my property management and that I could ensure that that's going to cash flow. to your point. Yeah. Coincidentally, when you, when you mentioned the real estate guys in Belize, when you guys were talking about St. Thomas and St. John, I went to San Pedro in Belize and spent a couple of days there, and I walked away thinking, man, I want to buy, buy a little vacation rental place here and do exactly what you guys were talking about. So I'll, I'll be looking that one up and, and seeing if I can get my hands on some Belize properties. Yeah, yeah, that's where that is, actually, uh, just mm-hmm. outside of San Pedro. Cool. Yeah, beautiful Thanks. area. And that's great advice because I had been, I guess I've been focusing more on the number of days a year that you would rent with short term and not as much on what the cost of the management would be. So I need to research that management expenses a little bit more. Right. Yep. So 
My wife and I bought our first property in Memphis as a 36-unit multifamily in 2018. And we decided we wanted to get into larger properties and don't have the capital to do that. So I'm wanting to GP my first syndication deal this year to try to bring investors in. Sure. You know, the two big differences from buying your own, buying it on our own to doing a syndication is I'm going to be dealing with investors. Mm-hmm. And then also I need to team up with a experienced GP for my first couple of deals. And wanted to see if you can suggest how to build relationships with experienced sponsors. Sure. Yeah. A little tougher now, obviously, in COVID land. <laughs> so I would say that the best way is always, of course, in person, right? Now, the problem with local is that you're so limited on talent and who's around you. Granted, you live in a great location for that, but <laughs> for a lot of people, maybe not so much. I would say, well, I used to go to conferences nationwide before COVID, just mm-hmm. all kinds of multifamily and real estate, this, that, and the other, any kind of investing conference, really. And uh, you would absolutely be able to network and find these people at those events. Now, there's even a different groups out there. I'm thinking off the top of my head right now, like uh, Lifestyles Unlimited out in Texas. Maybe they're yeah. out there as well. Brad Sumrock's got this program where he's got all these students that are kind of in a similar boat, right? Everyone has this passion and different skill sets for real estate. And so it's kind of in, you know, putting yourself in an environment where you can partner up more easily with people. You know, this guy's great at underwriting and this Mm -hmm. guy's great at asset management. Here's a financial person. Here's a capital raiser. And so you're kind of going to build that team that way. Okay. Those are probably the best ways. If what's coming to mind for you and your network is that I don't know anybody, (laughs) that's probably the best way. Uh, in my okay. Opinion. Okay. Thank you. And I'm really good at learning by getting my hands on stuff and doing it. And I would, you know, I consider to talk to people and learn how they're looking at deals. But I think what would really help me is being able to be more hands-on and meeting with a sponsor when they're walking a property that they're looking at acquiring or they're doing their due diligence process. Yeah. How again, like how do I reach out to sponsors and try to facilitate that? Like I don't mind flying to other states to do that. I just Mm -hmm. need to build that relationship or figure out how to approach that. Yeah, that's a great point. So before I got connected with Ashcroft Capital, I started out, so when I left the oil industry, first I went to go work for a brokerage house to learn kind of stocks, bonds, mutual funds. I did that world for a little while. Then I discovered real estate was really the underlying passion and always has been. So I went to go work for a small syndication group that was local to me. And I did that without an expectation of a high salary or big bonuses or anything like that. I did it because I had that quote unquote time freedom, right? I had enough passive income to suffice, you know, my living costs. So I did that just for the experience to learn the same thing, the underwriting, the acquisitions. I wanted to know this industry from the inside out instead of just being an LP investor and never quite understanding how it works from the inside. So they were not for transparency, a a highly uh, experienced group, you know, with a longstanding track record, it's hard to sometimes break into those connections, right? Uh, When you're wanting to mentor, but it was a huge, tremendous learning curve for me. And I just did it by adding value. 
I said, look, I can do investor relations. I can do some marketing stuff. I can do this, that, and the other. And basically, I don't care what the pay is. But if you're willing to exchange kind of your knowledge to me, that's a win-win. So that's how I did it. I don't have a good answer on how to break into a highly experienced group (laughs) uh, without any experience. But yeah, that's what I did anyway. Okay. Yeah, exactly what you said, Travis. You know, a lot of the the people that are newer in the business are are looking for people like that. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. looking for somebody to come in and and help. And quite frankly, a lot of people who are newer in the business probably can't pay that that high salary that the more experienced guys could. Right. But yeah, so just just finding the right person. You know, and I think your conferences and networks and everything else. That's that's where you find them. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Great. I'm I'm going to Vegas to a conference next week. That's my first real estate conference to go to. So maybe I'll meet some people there and make some connections. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. And then when I do my first deal, I'm going to have to do my first capital raise. Mm-hmm. And since you invest on in a lot of deals and I've never done a deal before, this will be my first deal. And of course I'll be partnering up with somebody. What's your suggestions on how to attract investors to my deal? And then also from like a marketing standpoint with everybody else marketing their deals, what can I do differently to stand out? Gotcha. Yeah. Do you know if you'll be doing a 506B or 506C offering? Do you know, have you gotten that far with it? I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay. Makes a big difference in terms of marketing, obviously, right? So a C could be publicly advertised, whereas a B could not be. But regardless, I guess let's take it from this approach. I would be leveraging everything I could out of who you're partnering with that's bringing the experience. I mean, if, if you're individually not bringing the experience, I would be saying, look, our, our co-founder here, our co-GP has been doing this 15, 20 years. Here's been the track record and the results. Happy to share that with you, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Additionally, professionalism goes so far in this space, to me anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you're putting together a pro forma, when you're putting together a website, when you're putting together video content, whatever you're doing, make that the highest and best. Spend extra money on that, right? Because some people, perception is everything. They look at this this over, and myself included, you know, sometimes I get I get sent so many deals week to week, month to month. And sometimes I'll get this five pager on a deal, five pages of an overview on a value add project. The average is probably 40 to 60 pages, mm-hmm. maybe five. And it looks like a fifth grader put it together on a PowerPoint. I mean, I pass immediately. I don't even care what the numbers are. I don't even care who the team is. I just pass, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. because it just automatically is like red flag. Why did you not put any time or effort into this? I'm out. And so that, that would be one of the biggest things I would suggest is, is finding a good example, something that looks very professional. I'm happy to share one with you as well. And just imitate that, right? Okay. That's a, a great tip. And are there any software or anything that people are using to create those? Boy, you know, I, I wouldn't be the expert on that. I, I think I'm not certain, but I think Ashcroft just uses like PowerPoint template, but it looks very professional. It's not the fifth grade version, yeah. <laughs> it's the professional version, but I don't know. I'm sure there's great software out there and, and Photoshop stuff and whatnot, but uh, okay. you know, you don't have to go invest tens of thousands of dollars there on that. 
Yeah, we, we yeah. use Adobe products right now. We uh, Adobe Spark is what we did our last one with. And it's, it's one where you can you can put on, I mean, you look at it on your phone and it scrolls up and it's it's more like a web appearance and it's it's, it's web-based. But oh, Adobe cool. Spark is that one. First time we, we tried it and I think it looks phenomenal. But on our previous ones, we did PowerPoint and then converted PowerPoints to PDFs. I mean, there you go. Yeah, no, that was it. Nothing okay. super flashy. Yeah, I assume PowerPoint was what I would use, but I didn't know if there's something like the Adobe that I wasn't aware of. So I'll check that out. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then my other question about raising capitals, I feel like that you get a lot of soft commitments from people. Mm-hmm. And then are you going to actually have enough go hard to be able to close? How much do you need to like oversell your deal to actually be able to guarantee you're going to get enough commitment to close? Yeah, that's a great question. Brian, I'll probably defer mm-hmm. that one to you. My guess would be maybe maybe a 20% margin, but I really don't know. What would you say to that? As far as margin, we, we like to, to ask some, some very specific questions to our investors. On our first deal, you know, if somebody committed 50,000, we were like, yes, 50,000 and didn't ask a lot of questions. But when it came time, so-and-so had their money in, in a retirement fund. And the retirement fund wasn't self-directed yet. And so that takes a month or two. So Uh, I I think one thing we do is we start asking a couple of questions. Just say, hey, there's some administrative issues that are involved with certain transactions. Where's the money for this investment coming from? And we've been able to weed out a couple of people just by that question. You know, we we had somebody back out of our first deal. He had committed $50,000, but... The $50,000 was in equity in a house that he was planning on selling. Uh, so we trim that margin down just by asking some very specific questions, you know, and if they say this is going to be from a retirement fund, you know, the follow on question is, is the money already in SDRA? You know, who is the SDRA custodian? Is it an EQRP? You know, what, what form is it in? Is it checkbook control? And so we're starting to ask a little more detailed questions on, where the money is coming from so that we are avoiding some of the, especially with the newer investors, you know, some of the newer investors just don't realize, okay, they're going to ask me $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars and I have to wire it within a couple of days. And, and we, we make that clear as well, that this is when we need your funds by. And the guy selling his house, he ended up selling it a month after we closed and walked away with a lot less than he thought he was. So yeah, um, yeah I, I would say, 120% is probably a safe number. But once again, it's really dependent. If you have a couple of repeat investors and on your first deal, you're not going to have repeat investors. But if you have repeat investors and you know they're good for it, those are the type where you're like, okay, this, this money's certain. Yeah. And there may be some other investors that you're looking at and you're like, my spidey senses are tingling. So um, <laughs> <laughs> we've had one investor commit 200,000 to three deals. And never came through. So oh, wow. um, when this person texted us two weeks ago and asked about our latest, yeah, we, we, we did not put that on our, on our board, put it that yeah. way. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those are some great points. I guess that's true. If you, once you do a couple of deals and you have somebody that's a consistent investor, then you can bank on that money coming through yeah. more than somebody you haven't dealt with before. One, one more thing I'd add to that, David, Brian, I'm sure you'd agree with this, is try to put, you know, funds are due by 
this date, and that's usually 15 to say 30 days out from the actual closing, if okay. possible, right? Gives yeah. you a little margin for yeah. instead of that last minute, what closings today and no one wired. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point too. And that yeah. way you have a little bit of time for a contingency plan if, if yeah. things can come in. Yeah. And on our Great first point. deal, we didn't do that. And it was a scramble getting the money through. Obviously, we, we closed on it and it worked. But that was one thing, you know, when we did the next deal, it was like, okay, here's our timeline. Here's when the webinar is. Here's when the PPM is going to be available. Here's when funds are due and, and everything else. So I agree 100% with that, Travis. That's, that's vital, giving the expectation up front on right. here's when the money's going to be due. Cool. Love it. Yeah. That's uh, great tips. I know as far as putting deals together, there's capital raising side, there's deal finding side. Like I've been running my business for 17 years and I like the process of running a business and I feel like uh, apartment building is another business. So I like the idea of getting it through escrow, dealing with the lending process, doing underwriting, and then the asset management side of it. How can I put that together. Like I know most people are focusing on the other two areas and I don't know how, if, if I want to kind of focus more on that middle area, how can I do that and how can I quantify that? How can I make that my business that I like to do? Sure. Yeah. Well, I get in general, I would try to start with a mentor, right? Or your mm -hmm. co-GP, somebody experienced to kind of learn that process from a few angles. If that ends up being to your point, what you love doing you know, obviously you could focus more on that or incorporate that into your bigger scheme of things. But I don't know, Brian, what, what would you say to that? A lot of the, the first timers have, have really small groups. And so between two or three people, they're doing everything. When you latch on to a larger syndicator, and there, there are large syndicators that will take on people like, like you're, you're talking about, they are looking for people who are hyper-focused on one aspect of the overall deal. You know, I, I'd imagine, you know, once you get to be like Ashcroft size, there, there are people who are specifically doing X yeah. and Y and Z, whereas with the smaller syndicators, you've got three guys who are, you know, trying to do everything, you know. So yeah. I, I would say you're, you're just going to be looking for a different, different size group if, if you want to, to specialize in, in something small like that and figure out at these events that you go to, there's going to be some really big fish at those. And there's going to be, you know, a lot of tire kickers, you know, so there, there's kind of both ends of the spectrum. Just be hyper-focused in your Las Vegas trip on people who can bring you on in that capacity. And once again, I think what Travis said up front was, was key as well is provide value to them without expectation of a lot in return. Okay. So that's, that's a great point. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're just about out of time here. So I got, I got one more question for both of you. Travis, first for you, where can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. Instagram, Facebook, Bigger Pockets. I'm out there. Just, just search me. It's uh, at Passive Investor Tips for social media. Additionally, I do these 15-minute Q&A phone calls with folks. It's completely free, no upsells there. And I have a downloadable PDF called Understanding Real Estate Private Placements. If anyone wants to download that, you can find either of those at ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. And again, I, I don't have any programs or books or anything to sell you, but download those as some resources, happy to connect. And that's probably the best place to reach out. 
Yeah. And I'll make sure that's in the, the show notes. So anybody looking for that, you know, you don't have to busily scribble that down. Just tap on the show notes, scroll down and Travis, I'll put, I'll put a link to your Instagram, Facebook and bigger pockets profile in there. Cool. Thanks, David. So, and then David, same question for you. How can our listeners get in touch with you? I'm on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. And then my website is raise re.com. That's R A I S E R E.com. All right. Sounds good. And, and same thing, you know, we'll put links to those in, in the show notes for you. So, you know, for both of you guys, I, I so much appreciate you guys coming on. This was a fun conversation. We learned a lot. Travis, thanks for you, your unique perspective as a full-time passive investor. And I, I know you got a lot of other experience from your other ventures as well. And, you know, David, thanks for, for coming on and, you know, asking a lot of questions and helping everybody learn through the process. You bet, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys both for answering the questions. That was really helpful. Yeah. Thanks, David. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone tap subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.